Good morning. Thanks for joining me today as I teach this last Bible study lesson of the spring. Lord willing, we'll be able to meet in person together as we start up again in the fall. Let's pray before we get started. God, we thank you that we have the privilege of studying your word. We have the ability to do it together through this podcast and that you've given us the spirit to understand. I pray for people who don't know you as they listen, that you would open their hearts to you. And for those of us who are believers, help us to know more of who you are through this. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been following along with us, you'll have learned about the rich depth of emotion that comes from the Psalms. They've been a great source of comfort to believers throughout the ages. They help us to understand our own hearts before God, and they help shape our feelings and aid us in rightly ordering our thoughts. They voice our praises, they cry with us in lament, and they wrestle beside us through dark days. I love the book of Psalms. Back in the olden days, when we could peruse the Christian bookstores, we'd see verses from the Psalms printed everywhere on water bottles, magnets, journal covers. Psalms that are encouraging and comforting are all over the place, and that's good. Scripture is full of truth and power, and why not have it all over our houses? I appreciate the desire to put God's very words on something we use around the house so that we can remember often what he says. But what do we do with the parts of the Bible that aren't really bookstore worthy? This, I fear, is one of the many dangers of the Christian bookstore gift section. Why is the often out of context verse, be still and know that I am God, more important than the verse, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Some Psalms don't quite make the final cut for necklaces or bookmarks or throw pillows or picture frames. Let's face it, no one really wants to open a gift from a friend and pull out a coffee mug that says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm being a bit cheeky here, but my point is this. We must be women who truly value all of God's word. And so we must work hard to be familiar with it in its entirety. I know that sometimes it's in that working hard that we come across passages that confuse us. So we skip past them or we assume there's nothing applicable. Sometimes we may feel not smart enough to tackle tricky passages. Are, women, are we women only capable of understanding the simple, easy-to-reach sections of Scripture? No. If you've been made alive in Christ, then His Spirit lives in you. And the Spirit can help all of us understand God's Word. You might be wondering why I'm starting my lesson saying all these things. Well, we're studying Psalm 110 today. Have you guys read it? You guys, it's nuts. It's so complicated. Well, get your Bible out open it up, look at it with me. You might be listening to this while you're doing other things like cleaning or walking. That's okay. Just pay attention. So let's read Psalm 110 together. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. 
So I had no idea what the psalm was about when I started preparing for this lesson. I had read it numerous times over the years, and much of its language was familiar to me, but it was still confusing. You might have just heard it and recognized more than I did, or maybe it's perplexing to you. We all come to this psalm with varied knowledge, and that's okay. For me, I was baffled. It didn't help that my husband James told me he thought it was the most important psalm in the book of Psalms. No pressure. I also discovered it's the most quoted verse from the Old Testament to the New. No pressure. And then I read this quote from a commentary. To the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles. To the early church, it was full of treasures. Okay, so I was feeling lots of pressure studying this, but that quote actually got me intrigued. What's going on in this psalm? Why is it so cherished by some and so ignored by others? What are we supposed to do with it? Would it surprise you if I said this psalm is all about longing? It surprised me when it started to become clearer to me. I usually don't start my lessons by telling you the main point of the passage, but today I will, because I want you to see where I ended up in my study, and I want you to see how I got there. This psalm, I think, is teaching us that God was preparing for the coming of a true and ultimate king and priest, and that people needed an answer to their heart's longing for a just ruler and savior. When we look from this side of the cross, we can guess that this psalm is about Jesus, even if we don't really know what it means. But what did David's readers think of it? Obviously, they sang it. It's in the psalm book. But did they know what it meant? These are the main questions we'll need to ask before we figure out what it means for us today. So today, I have two goals for my lesson. The first is to hand you your own shovel for digging. The second is to unearth this treasure that's in here together. I want you to see that you are capable of delving deep in the earth of God's word and discovering what's beneath. I also want you to know that teachers don't have special knowledge or divine help beyond what you have. I didn't want to teach this lesson today and just tell you what I've learned, but I wanted to show you how I got there so that you can find your own way too. So just like a builder selects the right tools for each specific building task, we must figure out what tools we need to study the Bible. This is actually a pretty exhaustive topic, so, and I need to be brief today, so I'm only going to share some tools that I found most helpful for this specific psalm. Let's explore it together. The first tool, <clears throat> and the most important one, is we've got to read our Bibles. This might seem obvious, but we got to read our Bibles. We have to read it often and over and over, and then we read it again. We should read the parts we understand and the parts we don't. We need to read the Christian bookstore coffee mug passages, and we need to read all the other ones. We need to re read familiar books of the Bible, and then we got to move on and read Leviticus and Obadiah and Philemon, and we read and we read and we repeat. Why? Because the more we get the word of God into our brains and hearts, the more it will make sense to us and transform us. This is by far the best tool I have in helping me with Bible study. Practically speaking, this has helped me recognize places and names I read, it flags in my brain themes from different books, and it pieces together stories and concepts that flow from Genesis to Revelation. Just last week I was reading in 1 Corinthians, and I found a fascinating connection to Psalm 110, and that connection turned on another light bulb of understanding for me. So, knowing the Bible in general 
will be a great resource in, to you in your study of specific passages. That's my first tool. The second one is we need to read and reread the text we're studying. So this psalm, this is where I started. So when I sat down to prepare for this lesson, my initial reading of Psalm 110 reminded me a lot of other passages. The name Melchizedek was familiar to me, as well as the footstool imagery. Did everything make sense to me? No. I mean, I don't know what, I didn't know what was with the womb of the morning and the dew of the youth, of your youth. Not a clue. So again, I read and reread over and over. I read it in multiple translations. I even wrote it out a few times. You could also listen to this passage. We should do anything we can to familiarize ourselves with it. Third, I began to look closely at how the psalm was structured. This is my next tool. Why do I look at the structure? Because when we understand how a passage is put together, we can see that its structure all works together to emphasize one thing, the main point. It should all point to it. As I look at this psalm, I'm asking myself, why did David write it? What was its purposes, purpose to readers of his day? So I looked at the psalm in a few ways. I looked for repeated worms, words and themes. I tried to figure out who was talking to whom, and then I tried to piece it all together. So we're actually going to do that together now. <coughs> First, let's look at repeated words. So look at the psalm again with me. I noticed many words referring to royalty. There's scepter and rule in verse 2 power in verse 3, and I loosely knew that sitting at someone's right hand meant something involving kingly authority. And then that repetition, repetition was broken, and then there's an odd switch to a priest in verse 4. So the repetition of royal was broken by priest, and that was a big signal to me. Something's going on. I also noted, noted the repetition of um, and lots of themes of enemies or opposing rulers. So in verses 1, 2, 5, and 6, they're in there. And then I could tell something was going on regarding battles and victory over and over in this psalm. So in verse 1, enemies are becoming footstools. In verse 2, enemies are being ruled over. The day of your power in verse 3 probably meant a war victory. Kings are being shattered in verse 5. And judgment is executed really vividly and completely in verse 6. And then I wondered if perhaps at the end after this victory, verse 7, when he drinks from the brook and lifts up his head, perhaps that's some kind of um, peaceful thing that someone does after, after victory, this confidence and authority. It was a guess. So, and I also, as I looked, I still had no clue what the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth meant, but that's okay. So I was trying to uncover the structure. And I looked at repeated words and themes, and then I was going to figure out who was talking to whom. This is tricky. There are a lot of lords in this psalm. Why? And who are the mys and the yous? And did you notice how many changes of perspective and voice take place in this psalm? Let me give you an example of what's going on here. I'm going to act out a scenario that happens quite frequently in my life, and I want you to try and guess what's going on. Can I take your order? I'd like two plain cheeseburgers. Does anyone else want a cheeseburger? Make that four plain cheeseburgers. Stop tapping on the window. Is that it? No, I'd like two large, seriously, can you stop talking? Fries? Who just burped and didn't say excuse me? Can I also get a 10-piece chicken nugget? Sure, we can watch a movie later. Anything else? Yes, a nice coffee. Stop breathing on your sister. 
and that's all. Oh wait, um, can I get some extra quiet kids, napkins? Sure, drive on up. You know what's going on here. I'm ordering at the McDonald's drive-through. But interruptions and change in who I'm talking to makes the conversation quite scattered, which let's be honest is about 90% of my conversations these days. Well, just like this example, we can see what David is doing in general. We know he's telling his readers something about God's appointed ruler, but how David goes about that is a bit confusing. All the change in voice and all the Lords can leave us modern readers puzzled. Well, first let's get the Lord straight. There are two different Lords here. Lord in all caps equals Yahweh. That's God's personal name. So in verses one, two, and four, we see that Yahweh is saying, Yahweh is sending, and Yahweh is swearing. Well, what about the other Lords? We see the word Lord, capital L and lowercase O-R-D in verses one and five. This is someone else royal or someone else in authority like a master, like a sovereign. And it's often it often has divine connotations. And we'll see that this master is both a king and a priest. Well, let me see if I can summarize this psalm in a way that helps you see who's talking to whom. Yahweh says to David's master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion a mighty scepter belonging to the king who is greater than David. This king will rule in the midst of his enemies. The people belonging to this great king will offer themselves freely on the day of his power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of his youth will be his. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. This king that is greater than David will also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This sovereign king priest is at Yahweh's side and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This king priest who is greater than David will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses, and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. David's master will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, this king priest will lift up his head. Remember, as we're digging together here, we're trying to see what David was writing and why. And at this point in my study, a blurry picture was forming of Yahweh's plans for the mysterious Lord. And as I began to see who's speaking to who, as I looked at the themes, I saw that Yahweh is commanding and sending and swearing things that all have to do with this kingly figure. And this battle imagery and the royal language all served to help me see what was going on. So a rough structure of the passage was formed in my brain. I'm gonna share it with you. I saw that in verses one to three, that Yahweh declares a king will reign with authority and power. In verse four, Yahweh swears a priest will reign with authority. And in verses 5 to 7, Yahweh is with this king priest who will be ultimate judge and victor. So I wanted the thrust of my structure to show that Yahweh is the one declaring and swearing and with this, this figure. And that this king and priest has one with authority. So that's how I came about it. Well, let's stop and consider the original audience. The truth is, the psalm makes no sense apart from Jesus. None. You have to wonder, what was David thinking as he was inspired by God to write this? And what were God's people thinking as they read it or sang it? They had a great king, David. Was the psalm about him? Obviously not. But what greater king would come? And this king would be a priest? Perhaps it filled them with questions and wonder and longing. What kind of king 
is established by Yahweh himself. Who would ever be able to sit at the right hand of the God of the universe? How could this king rule over Israel and all the nations? And how could a king be a priest? And why would we need one? How wonderful a ruler like this could be. Longing and mystery. There's longing in this psalm and there's mystery of what it means. And since the time of the fall in Genesis 3, we've been a sorry lot of people who are plagued with sin from within and enemies from without. Mankind has longed and waited for rescuing from the evil that threatens us from all sides. And we can relate to this, can't we? Do we not this very day battle the consequences of our coming death, as well as the foul sin in this world that's in this world and in our hearts? We do. And in Genesis, sin and death entered into this world, and nothing was ever the same. No fellowship with God, no freedom from sin, no rest from the enemy named death. And if you know the story, you know there's a promise. One from Adam's seed would come and crush Satan. So the story unfolds as sin spreads over the world. And God calls a pagan man named Abram to follow him. And God blesses him. He says, I'll make you into a great nation from which all the world will be blessed. Abraham obeys. And we know that from him comes the very one who will crush the ultimate enemy. We'll fast forward a few hundred years. And God's people have multiplied, but they are kingless. God gives them David, a warrior king, who defends them and lives a holy life, but he's not perfect. God makes another promise to David in 2 Samuel. He says, from his household would come a king who would rule forever. So perhaps David's people sang this in expectation, thinking of God's promise to David, even though they didn't know exactly what it meant, but they knew that God, Yahweh, would bring a different kind of ruler somehow. We know that something else was going on. I want to bring out one last tool that our modern Bibles have included for us, cross-references. This will help you see how this, these help us see how the Bible interprets the Bible. Some of you may be very familiar with them and others may not be. I was actually a Christian for a long time before I understood not only how to use them, but why they are so important in study. Cross-references are the little letters next to the words in your text and they direct you to other places in the Bible that are similar to your passage or places that quote your passage. (coughs) If you're not familiar with them and want to try your hand at it, Psalm 110 is a great one to start with. You'll not only get your feet wet, but it'll feel like cracking open a fire hydrant and trying to take a drink from it. Because in Psalm 110, there are over 55 cross-references, most of which are from the New Testament. Typically, when I'm preparing to teach, I look up every single cross-reference. Some are helpful and some aren't. But for personal study, I only use them when I want to understand a passage better or when I want to see how it connects to other parts of the Bible. In this psalm, I used cross-references to help me understand um, some of the major questions I had. And actually, it was the biggest contributor to helping me get what the main point of this passage was. So we're gonna, I'm just going to highlight a few of those cross-references um, in verses, from verses 1 and 4. Let's look at what's going on in verse 1. So as a reminder, this is the verse that says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, the cross-references are actually pretty interesting because we see that J- Jesus himself quotes this verse in Matthew 22 and also in Mark 12 and Luke 20. 
But look with me at Matthew 22. We're going to look at verses 41 to 46. So Jesus has recently entered into Jerusalem like a king on a donkey, and he was just days away from his crucifixion. And here he is sitting in front of the Pharisees and some others talking, and this is what he says. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus is trying to open the eyes of his listeners to the true nature of the coming Messiah. He's not only pointing to himself, because he is the son of David after all, but he's making the astounding claim that this coming Messiah will be greater than David, not just his son. But still, even as Jesus declares Psalm 110 messianic, it's not fully understood by listeners of his day until Jesus is actually exalted at the right hand of God after he ascends. So in Acts 2:34, Jesus has died and risen again, and Peter and the Holy Spirit just came, and Peter is standing before thousands, and he's sharing with them about who Jesus truly was. And he quotes Psalm 110, and he states, this is Christ Jesus. He's, he's preaching that this man that came, Jesus, was actually the long-awaited-for Messiah, who is now sitting at the throne of God. Do you know what it did to the people who are listening? In verse 37, it says they were cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? Jesus is the true king from Psalm 110. Do you see what happened here? A king prophesied about thousands of years beforehand actually came, and he rose to be in power next to Yahweh. Now, David's audience would have read this psalm with longing, thinking someone greater than David is coming. How could there be a greater king? Even though our enemies surround us, someone will come to completely subdue them all? Yes. They didn't know that from Zion, the holy mountain of God in Jerusalem, someone would come who would be a warrior king. So Jesus is the king who conquered and shattered kings, and he judges enemies. They will be so decimated and brought low that Jesus will, it's, it'll be like he's reclining at rest, in rest on them. But there's one more stop in the New Testament I want to take before I move on. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you see what's going on here? um, Paul's talking about Jesus returning, and he says right now he's actually sitting at the right hand of God, but all his enemies are not under his feet yet. How's this going to end for us who are in Christ today? We deal with death all around us. I know there are many of us who are listening, many of you who constantly have death in your face. And we all just know our bodies are decaying. But this says that those who are believers will be raised up to new life in him, will be made alive because 
Christ conquered the last, he will conquer the last enemy, death. And he's going to put him under his feet. And then he'll sit down again at his father's right side because his work will be done. So we, today, we wait for Christ's return when death will put, be put to death, when we'll no longer face the enemies of this world. That's our great hope. This is what David longed for, and this is what the people of God longed for for thousands of years. And what did David? What else did David's readers need? They needed protection and deliverance from enemies, real enemies that surrounded them. But they were also burdened by their sin. They needed atonement. So let's look back at Psalm 110.4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why is this mysterious king also a priest, and who is Melchizedek? Well, if we look at our cross-references, we see that Melchizedek is mentioned two other times in the Bible, once in Genesis 14, and then a few times in the New Testament in Hebrews. Turn to Genesis 14. We've already mentioned Abram. This was the pagan man God called to lead to be the father of the nations. His name was changed to Abraham. So Abram, had just come back from a war and on his way back he meets a mysterious figure Melchizedek the king of Salem so it says in Genesis 14 18 and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of most high God of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be Abraham by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So there are a few noteworthy things in the story. For one, nowhere else in history is there a record of this king and priest, Melchizedek. <clears throat> it's also very strange that he's a king and a priest at this point. There were no priests. Secondly, Salem wasn't a place. It means peace and it most likely corresponds to Jerusalem. Thirdly, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then Abraham tithes a lot of money to, back to him. So in this strange, quick story, Melchizedek, it, it, he's not even mentioned again until Psalm 110. He's mysterious, and no one really knows what he meant, what, what the story meant. <clears throat> but our mysterious figure in Psalm 110 is likened to him. But not only that, Yahweh himself swears that this Lord will be a priest forever. It still wouldn't have made much sense to readers of David's day, though. But when we look at all the cross-references in Hebrews, <coughs> the veil is lifted, and we can see all that God is doing. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> so so the, re- the writer of Hebrews has been saying, has been comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, the beginning of chapter 7. And then he comes to verse 15 and he says, it becomes even more evident that Jesus, or sorry, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like he's not a priest because he came from a line of priests, but he's a priest by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll stop there. And then later you see that Jesus, it talks about Jesus being this new priest. He's a guarantor of a better covenant. In 725, it says all the other priests would die. 
But Jesus is actually able to save to the uttermost. And people can draw near to God because he is always making intercession. He's a priest forever. And then we get to 10:12 in Hebrews. <clears throat> it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. So you see that Jesus is this true and lasting and forever priest. Hebrews sheds light on it. So the people of Israel needed external salvation. They also needed rescuing from their own internal sin. One would come, Yahweh swears, who will be a never-ending priest of righteousness and peace. And we know that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And at the end of Psalm 110, we see this warrior, king, priest figure. <coughs> he's fiercely overtaking enemies and he's executing judgment. His coming victory is so sure that the psalm ends with a pause as he refreshes himself by the brook. He lifts his head in confidence and authority. Ladies, this is our king and our priest. How do we respond to him? Think with me back at verse 3 of Psalm 110. It says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The people of this king priest, <clears throat> they willingly join him. They offer themselves freely to his cause and they're ready and they're dressed in the right clothes. They're prepared. And then we look at the rest of this verse, the, the crazy, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I'll give you an insider tip. <clears throat> Commentaries are another fantastic tool. I didn't mention them, but I use them. To, I consult with them when I'm stumped. But you know what? They don't know everything. They didn't know what this verse meant. It's pretty widely agreed upon that verse 3 is a very, very hard verse to translate. <clears throat> and you probably noticed that as you listened to me when I was reading the ESV, that probably if you had a different translation, well, I know it says something completely different. It's really confusing to know how to translate it. So I consulted multiple commentaries, and I won't go in different details, but I'll just say from what I understand, I think this is loosely saying that God's people willingly join him and they will be um, plentiful and they'll come faithfully like they do every single morning. When the morning opens up, there's always dew and there's always a lot of it. So that's what I took from it. And a few commentators thought that too. So what's important in this passage, sorry, <clears throat> is the stark contrast between the willing people and the enemies of God. Will, we, will the people be running willingly and freely to join him? Or will they end up as a corpse under his feet? That's what the readers of David's day had to consider. <clears throat> were they going to be an enemy or were they going to join him willingly? And this is where we find ourselves too. How will we respond to Jesus? Will we be his people or will we be his enemies? You must consider that. So Yahweh himself made a plan to rescue his sinful people. Remember last week's teaching from Psalm 106? Israel could not stop sinning, yet God relented from his wrath because of his love for him. He could not break his covenant with his people. And Psalm 110 is teaching us that God was preparing for the coming of a true and ultimate king and priest. 
because he knew that people needed an answer to their hearts longing for a just ruler and savior. Are you a part of his people? Because if not, you are one of his enemies. I'm thankful for this mighty scepter that came from Zion. I'm thankful for this forever priest who is like Melchizedek. It's because of him that I can draw with confidence near to his throne of grace. Because I know that I can receive mercy and find grace in my time of need. This king priest is on his throne and he has also atoned for my sins. So this should help us along all the more for his return. I think this news is worthy of more than just being on a coffee mug. I think we should read these kind of Psalms that are hard to understand and we should rejoice and try to dig and try to understand because they open to us a world of understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. So I encourage you to do that. Thanks for joining me. I'm gonna pray to end. God, we thank you so much for this Psalm. I thank you, Lord, that you have come and you have brought a royal scepter. Lord, help us to willingly join you. Help us our hearts to know who you are. Thank you for this king and priest. Help us today in our normal lives as we go about our day. Help us, Lord, to remember this king and priest and be thankful for all that he's done. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies.